It's good to see everybody tonight. The scripture passage for tonight comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the seventh chapter. The passage that's in your bulletin is the New International Version, and um, I'd like you to read along with that and compare it with what I read, which is the um, CEB. Notice the difference in some of the words. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. You'll receive the same judgment you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt to you. Why do you see the splinter that's in your brother's or sister's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You deceive yourself. First, take the log out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's or sister's eye. Don't give holy things to dogs. And don't throw your pearls in front of pigs. They will stomp on the pearls, then turn around and attack you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A note about the context of this passage. It is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, Jesus is uh, sort of correcting a lot of the religious practices that the leaders are doing, which are misinterpretations of uh, their oral Torah and rules. And they have managed to twist some of them around. So Jesus is setting them back uh, the way uh, it should be. You'll notice in here he says... Uh, let me take the uh, speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye. It depends on the translation you're using. Some say speck and plank. Some say sawdust and plank. Some say splinter and log. Some say moat and beam. But in reality, the... um, when the Hebrews requested their um, Torah to be translated into Greek, resulting in the Septuagint version, the Greek words that were used for these have pretty significant meaning. For the splinter, the same Greek word is used to describe the little sprig that the dove brought back to the ark to let Noah okay, know it was okay to leave. Kind of tiny. Fits in a bird's mouth. For the plank, he referred to the same word that's used to describe the beams that line and hold up the roof in the temple. Now the temple is a flat roof. It's not uh, slanted like this one. And those beams are 30 feet long. That's four times the length of that beam and probably about four times that size. 
when we hear these kinds of contrasts, at least when I do, I kind of pass over them. Yeah, yeah, I got that, you know. But this is a huge contrast. Huge. And that means that Jesus wants us to really consider how serious this is, at least in my interpretation. They're carpentry, carpentry terms. Will you pray for me as I pray for you? <clears throat> Almighty God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you alone are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Eighty percent of what we perceive, in spite of the fact that we have five senses, comes from our eyesight. In order to uh, see something, it, the two things are required. The first is the ability of the eye to register an image on the retina in the back of your eye. The second part is for the brain to take that image and identify it and apply some meaning or value to it. For example, I might see spinach on the table. And some people are going to say, oh boy, that looks good. And other people are going to say, oh, that's the most distasteful stuff I've ever had. Or the biblical example is a person like Zacchaeus, who was the chief tax collector in Jericho. The local people saw the image of, Jesus, uh, of uh, Zacchaeus on the back of their eye, but they interpreted it as a person they should hate and despise. Jesus saw exactly the same image on the back of his eye, but he interpreted Zacchaeus as a child of Abraham and God who was worth loving. Same image, two total outcomes that end up in different actions. Uh, and different responses. I think that's kind of uh, a, a sample of how we look at each other. We all see pretty much the same image. We all come up with different judgments about what that person is or isn't. We refer to these evaluations as judgments and Jesus says in verse 1 do not judge or you will be judged but some of us are going to say but how do you go through life without making judgments you have to make judgments we make them all the time all day long how can we function without judgments. In fact, Jesus even tells us in other locations to make judgments. For example, earlier in, at the end of this passage, he says, don't give holy things to dogs and don't throw your pearls 
in front of pigs. Well, that requires the ability to distinguish between what's sacred and what is not. You have to make a judgment. Uh, later on in chapter 7, he says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? See, Jesus warns us to make judgments about who is a false prophet and who is not. And yet he says, do not judge. In John 7, he says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now that seems like an absolute contrast, contradiction to what he just said at the front of this passage. And in Revelation 2, he's addressing the uh, Christians in Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them false. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, how do you test people without making judgments? So whatever Jesus is saying by do not judge or you will be judged has to have some other depth to it than just the simple act of judging. This, this is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he's addressing misapplications of the law or rabbinical teachings. Here he, in this statement about judging, he's uh, repeating a formula that the rabbis applied to intentionally punish false judgments that were designed to harm others. Luke's version of the same teaching in Luke 6 also implies that Jesus is rejecting the kind of judging that is condemning and unforgiving. One Jewish man puts it this way. Jesus is, and I quote, against taking on the role of God in judging others. That is to say, disciples should not declare God's condemnation against others or presume to know God's verdict regarding a human being. For example, a disciple should not call upon God to punish his fellow's sin, nor should he point to his fellow's misfortune and declare him justly repaid for wrongdoing. James, the brother of the master, explained, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? End quote. There's one word in this passage that really stands out for me as perhaps the center way of getting to what Jesus means. And that is the word, why? Why do you see the splinter that's in your brother's or sister's eye? 
I mean, why do you have a need to do that? What makes you want to do that? What drives your heart to be so critical of others? Why? What is your motivation? And why do you not notice the log in your own eye? Those questions are about motivation and attitude. It's all about the heart, which is at the center of Jesus' teaching. For it's out of the heart that all things come. If we are to do unto others as we want them to do unto us, then with what motivation and spirit would we want someone else to judge or criticize us? Perhaps focusing on the splinter in someone else's eye is simply a way of keeping us from having to recognize the log in our own. So Jesus really is telling us how we are to judge with the love by which God judges who shows mercy and compassion. And he tells us when we are to judge. And that is when we seek to strengthen or help another in order to bring them closer to God and not to exalt oneself over another. In other words, the way we make judgments about other people should simply be for their benefit, not because we know what's right and wrong, but because we know that in, in expressing our judgment in a loving, forgiving way, we can help draw them closer to God. That's the motivation, to draw people to God, not to condemn not to pursue, primarily because we don't know another person's heart. We don't know what's in their life. We don't know what's driving them. So what can we do to correct a critical and judgmental spirit? Now, I know there's none of those in here tonight, but I can tell you they're abundant in the church. <clears throat> so... Um, one thing is we can increase our self-awareness about our judging attitudes and actions. The problem is that becoming more aware of yourself is very difficult to do. So I would recommend you ask a good friend or spouse that you trust uh, to help you along that road and uh, then you can evaluate what they tell you. But increase your self-awareness. Secondly, explore your motives for judging other people. Why is it important for you to make such a judgment? What does such a judgment do for you? What does it do for them? And what does it do for God? Thirdly, develop perspective. There's that old adage, uh, never criticize another person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. It's another way of saying you don't really know what other people are facing and dealing with in their life. And until you know what they're dealing with, and until they know what you're dealing with, 
neither of you are qualified to make a judgment. Fourthly, accept other people as they are. I especially recommend this for husbands and wives. One of the major problems in marriages is that people marry one another with the hope that they're going to change them into what they want. And it always fails. It always fails. Primarily because when you change them into what you want, you can't stand them anymore. Because they're too much like you. Accept other people as they are. That's what God does. That's what Jesus did when he came here. He met us where we are and calls us to move forward from there. And lastly, love the other person. Love the other person because God loves them. Seek, uh, I mean, uh, before making any correction, ask yourself, is my comment necessary and is it loving? As we prepare to celebrate Jesus' expression of love and forgive up, forgiveness for us, perhaps Jesus is waiting for us to confess to him the log that's in our own eye so that Jesus can bring healing and hope for our life. Amen.